Good morning. My name is Melissa Shazer. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Presbyterian Church, and we are grateful to have you worshiping here with us this morning. It was 10 years ago today that I was preparing to go to Young Life Camp. Thank you, Rich. I was preparing to go to Young Life Camp and spend the entire summer at a camp in upstate New York. It's called Saranac Lake, and it is a beautiful camp and a wonderful place to spend the summer. The job that I had while I was at Saranac is that I was on the ropes course. I kind of lived in the trees that summer. I, uh, I would actually take books up to my platform with me and in between groups would just kind of hang out and read. And it was a wonderful place for me to be serving. And as I was being trained, I learned that my station was in between two parts of the ropes course. Students and leaders would walk along two ropes to get to my platform, and then I would hook them into a zip line, and they would jump off of a platform that was about 40 feet in the air, and they would zip down to the next tree. Now, in theory, I was fine with this. I thought, oh, this will be great. It'll be so much fun to see them zip down. And then I was told that the first person who I needed to hook into the zip line was myself. (laughs) It was in that moment that I started really thinking through the logistics of what we were doing. I realized that I had two little hooks, two of these carabiners, these pieces of metal that were going to hold my full weight as I lunged off of a platform. And I realized that I really needed to trust those two hooks. That is what we're talking about this morning. We are talking about what it is that we can trust with the full weight of our lives. If we are going to jump off of a platform, what is it that can hold us, not just now, but for all of eternity? We've been in a series on the Heidelberg Catechism for the last four weeks. The Heidelberg Catechism is a foundational document of our faith, and it was written in the 1500s when the church had schismed. The the Protestant Reformation had occurred. And what was happening was the church needed to figure out who it was. It was in a time of definition. And so it was asking questions like, what do we believe about Scripture, and who is God, and who is Jesus, and who are we in light of that? And so it followed a question-answer format to really take on the defining elements of our faith. Each week, we have asked a similar question to mirror one of the Heidelberg sections. We've asked things like, what really matters? in the end, and and what's wrong, what's the problem that we're facing, and who can save us. This week, we are arriving at the question, how are we saved? How does this take place? And in the Heidelberg Catechism, they frame it as, how are we righteous before God? If we have a holy God and we know that we aren't holy, how do we stand before before him? In case you're wanting to go home and study in the Heidelberg, let me know. Um, But this is question 60 and answer 60. And the answer to this question, how are we saved, how are we righteous before God, is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Now this answer goes on and on and on. There's a lot more that we could get into if we really wanted to go there. But I figured that instead of talking about imputation and expiation and these fancy words, uh, we would just talk about what it means to have true faith 
in Jesus Christ because that is enough. That is enough for us to cover. We're going to be asking questions this morning like, what is true faith if we say that we have that? And what is it about Jesus that we are putting our trust in? In order to do that, we need to go back a couple of weeks. A few weeks ago, Ron, our new transition pastor, preached on the problem of sin. He answered the question, what's wrong? What are we facing? And he said that we have this problem of sin that we carry with us. It's physical and it leads us to death. Sin, I think, is something that it isn't necessarily hard for us to wrap our minds around. It's all around us. It's easy to turn on the news and to see that people make decisions that are harmful and painful and destructive. And even in our day-to-day lives, I want to say that sin is spiritual, certainly, and it's also emotional in a lot of ways, and it's mental and cognitive because we know it. It is also a physical thing that we carry. We, when we break our relationships with one another, we feel that. When we uh, don't live up to the standards that we want to live up to, we feel shame and guilt, and we carry that with us. And, and that is why, in Scripture, the two most common ways that the Bible talks about sin are as a burden, a physical weight that someone bears on their shoulders, and a debt, something that is lacking between two individuals that needs to be repaid. Sin is a tangible entity that needs to be fixed because it ultimately leads to death. James 1.15 tells us, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. This is the problem that we're living in. And so then Rich came and preached last week on who can save us from this, and he said that Jesus was a sinless redeemer. He was fully God and he was fully human, so when he came into this world, he recognized this problem of sin that we were living in, but he didn't give into it. He didn't take on that sin for himself. He was perfect. And so when Jesus went to the cross, he solved this problem of sin. Now when I say that, it is fair to ask the question, how does Jesus dying on the cross fix this problem of sin? It is okay for us to ask that question. The answer has to do with his blood. Now blood is something that I think is kind of icky for us to talk about. It's just, we just don't often go there. I'm not around it very often. If you work in a hospital or in, on a farm maybe, you're around it a little bit, but it's just not that comfortable in our 21st century context. In the world of the Bible though, blood would have been a fairly common thing to be around. In order to eat anything with protein, something had to be killed. And so they would see blood. This was a common substance. And so blood for the people of the Bible, it wasn't icky or squeamish. Um, It was viewed as being powerful. Leviticus tells us that the life of the animal is in the blood. Blood symbolized life. And so if we are stuck in a problem of sin that leads to death, it is only life, the very power of life that will take us out of this. And I don't necessarily think that this is actually all that foreign to us, because if someone is in critical condition in a hospital, they're hooked up to all sorts of wires and things. 
But what they are given, it isn't water. Uh, it isn't some sort of like energy drink to bring them back. It's blood. We need donated blood because it is a life force that will take those who are hurting and dying and will re revitalize them. That is why we needed the blood of Jesus because he was perfect and he was sinless and he gave it up. And this is what happened with his blood. What happened was this thing called atonement. Now, atonement in scripture, the Hebrew word is kipar, and what it means is to, to purge away or to scrub away even. And so what I, I like to use a little image. If I have this coffee cup, and it's full to the brim with warm coffee, and I walk to the edge of the stage, and I checked it, I'm not going to, but if I, if I spilled this coffee on the carpet, there would be some people who are a little bit upset with me. I made them nervous the first time I did this. <laughs> but there are some people who would be upset with me. If I apologized, which of course I would, they could eventually say, Melissa, it's okay. We get it. Things happen. Don't take coffee on stage anymore. And we would be reconciled and we could move on. The problem is the stain is still on the carpet. That isn't fixed. Our relationship can be fixed all day long, but the stain's still there. When Jesus came to the earth and he died on the cross, he went beyond just forgiving us for our sins. We can confess to him and he can say it's okay and our relationship can be all good, but it was his blood that became a detergent, an atonement. He purged away the sin, physically pulling the stain out of our lives. He got down and on the cross, that is why he spilled his blood. So that our sin, not, not, it isn't just forgiven, it's actually physically gone. We are made new as if it hadn't happened before. And because of this, God sees us in a different way than we see ourselves when we confess our sins and believe this truth that Jesus died for us. We are actually given Jesus' righteousness, the holiness that he had. And while we may not see ourselves in this light, this is how God sees us. When we talk about grace, this is what we're talking about. This is something that we could not attain on our own. This forgiveness, this new redemption and new life that we find is not something that we could ever attain on our own. It only came through the blood of Jesus. Ephesians summarizes this really well in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. How are we saved? By true faith in the grace of Jesus Christ because he offered his blood for us on the cross. Faith, then, is what happens when we trust that this grace is sufficient, that the stain is actually gone, when we choose to jump off the platform and allow Jesus to be the hook that we hang the weight of our lives on. We trust that we are forgiven fully and that we can be made righteous before him. Faith in the Bible in Greek, the word is pistis, and what it actually means is trust or dependence. I think one of the problems that we get into when we talk about faith, though, is that we can reduce it down to simply believing, like cognitively, in the existence of God. 
we can stop there. That once you believe that God exists, then you have faith. But uh, the way that I like to talk about this is that my faithfulness to my husband or in my marriage, for example, it has very little to do with my belief in the existence of my husband. He, he's a physical person. I know that he's there. My faithfulness to him shows up when I depend on him, when I trust in him, and when he does the same for me. True faith requires relationship. It requires giving yourself and trusting the other person. We have a lot of beautiful examples in scripture of people showing this kind of faith, but one of my favorites is in Matthew chapter eight. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed And he said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This centurion, who would have been a a guard, a military commander in the ancient world, he had hundreds of men who he was commanding. He was a powerful guy. And yet in this circumstance, he recognized his limitation. He couldn't heal his servant. This was one thing that he couldn't do. And so he went to the one place that he actually knew he could find help. While he could have tried to rely on himself, instead he relied on Jesus. The centurion humbled himself, he asked for help, and then he trusted in a way that Jesus hadn't witnessed before. Jesus offers to go to this man's home and to physically heal him. Jesus had been doing that throughout the Gospels. This man is the first one to say, no, I don't even need your physical presence there. I trust that you are powerful enough that when you say the word, it will happen. That is a level of dependence, of faith, that Jesus calls us to aspire to. While while we're talking about faith this morning, what I don't want you to hear is that this is something that's easy. This isn't, faith isn't something that's simple. It's something that is a, a journey, a lifelong journey for all of us. And I think especially in our day and age and in this world, there are a few reasons why faith is especially hard. The first reason is that uh, we often live in the past. Our brokenness, our, our sin, our guilt, and our shame can often stay with us and even stay physically on us even after we have confessed our sins. Even after we have admitted that we've failed, that can still stick with us. And so while God has forgiven us, we aren't able to forgive ourselves. Or we encounter a person who we have a broken relationship with and we are reminded again of how that didn't work and we are pulled back into the same patterns over and over again. God calls us out of this and to live in a new type of freedom, but it is hard. It is hard for us to see ourselves in the freedom that God has given us. In a a commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, Craig Barnes wrote, to continue to wallow in guilt over the sins we have confessed to God is essentially to claim that Jesus' atonement for those sins was not satisfactory. 
It is to claim that our guilt is too great even for Jesus to handle, which is saying that we don't really have faith in him after all. This takes work. Freeing ourselves from the guilt of sin is something that takes work. Jesus has already paid for us, for it himself, but we have to take the next step and let ourselves be free. The second reason why faith isn't easy is because this world tells us that other things are more important and more trustworthy, even maybe more time sensitive than trusting in Jesus. We can easily hear messages about how if we just put the full weight of our lives in a hook-like investments, if we trust that those are going to be strong enough for us, then we'll be secure and taken care of for the rest of our lives. Or for the students in here, if, if you put all of your faith and trust in the hard work that you're doing to get into the right school, then you'll be able to fulfill your dreams and you'll be able to do whatever it is you want to do. Or I think uh, another message is that uh, if we find the right person, if we've put the full weight of our lives in just finding that right person, then we're going to be happy for the rest of our lives. I am not saying that these things aren't important. Most certainly, these are foundational parts of our lives, but, but these are things that will not last. Jesus is the only hook that is going to last for all of eternity, and he's the only one that is strong enough to hold the full weight of who we are. Those other hooks are the things that Jesus said moth and rust would destroy. They, they will. They're good right now. They're important now. But they are not as important as us trusting that Jesus has saved us from our sins. The last reason why I think faith isn't easy is because doubt is real. Doubt can get in the way of our faith at times because questions can arise whether we want them to or not. We can be reading scripture or just going along in our day and have moments where we're like, is this really real? The problem with doubt isn't so much that it happens. I want to say that doubt is actually a very normal part of the lives of faith and the journeys that we take. But the problem with the doubt is that we can get scared. We can kind of push away from God. In those moments when uncomfortable questions arise, we can feel shameful. We can kind of hide from our communities because we don't want to admit that we're asking those questions. And that creates a separation from God. I have had different uh, parts of my faith journey, and there were times of, of deep doubt. But what I want to tell you is that during those times of doubt, I didn't feel far from God. I sometimes felt far from my friends because I felt like I couldn't talk to them, or far from my church because they weren't answering the questions that I had. But I never felt far from God. I remember even journaling one night and writing, God, I'm not quite sure what I believe about you, but I got to talk to you. <laughs> I had a deep sense that God was still with me, and that makes sense because this is reflected in Scripture, that those who doubt are still close to God. In Matthew 28, the resurrected Jesus has re-enlivened. He is in the world and walking around with holes in his hands and in his feet, and he's proclaiming that he himself has been brought back to life because death couldn't conquer him. And so this is the encounter that he had with his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. These are his closest people going to meet the resurrected Jesus. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
They are standing physically in front of Jesus. They're as as close as they could possibly get, as close as we can ever dream of being, and yet they still doubted. God calls us through those times to continue to draw closer to him. And so in the midst of questions, in the midst of wonderings or pain, God always calls us closer to him. Jesus wants us to trust in him, that his sacrifice was efficacious, that it actually did pull the stain up, and because of that, he's trustworthy, and we can put the full weight of our faith in him. And by accepting that, we are accepting this gift. I loved Kathleen's children's sermon. This gift that we can never attain on our own that was only given by Jesus. And gift giving in our world is typically a one-way street. I had a birthday a couple weeks ago and got some sweet, lovely gifts from people. Uh, And in return, at most, I need to write a thank you card because gifts are freely given. In the ancient world, that was true, too, with one little caveat. There's a guy named John Barclay who's a scholar. He wrote an entire book on gift giving in the ancient world and what Paul thought about grace. What he says is that gift giving was just a little bit more complicated because there was an understanding of reciprocity. Not that you would give the exact same thing back or even something of equal value, but that you would give something in return when you received a gift. Jesus calls us to give our lives back to him. Earlier I read Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. Verse 10, the one immediately following that, says we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. When we accept this gift of grace, we are supposed to hand ourselves over to him and this image almost is like God is a craftsman. We are the clay and he is molding us into the new creations that he wants us to be. We're supposed to live new lives after we accept this gift of grace. We are not meant to continue to live in these old patterns. How are we saved? By faith, by trust, in the grace of Jesus, which makes us new, which gives us Jesus' very own righteousness. Over the course of the last few weeks, we have together proclaimed our faith Uh, through the Heidelberg Catechism, the very beginning of it. Question and answer one are a wonderful, beautiful summation of what we believe. And Paul calls us to proclaim with our mouths and believe with our hearts. And that is how we are saved. So I want to invite you all to stand with me now as we proclaim this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him.
You may be seated. We have made invitations to faith over the last few weeks. We've been inviting you to have conversations with your friends and your family members, people who you care about, about where you're at in your faith. Whether you've never accepted Jesus or never really understood what this was all about, or if you have been following him for decades but all of a sudden feel like you're at a new place, like you've hit some new barriers or roadblocks, or if you feel like you're having questions that you haven't had before, we've wanted you to engage those. Today, we are making an even more direct invitation to you. During the closing song, we will have anointing stations, two over here at the end of the aisles, two in the back, and two up in the balcony. Anointing in scripture was used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit dwelling with people. When people accepted Christ, engaged in their faith, the Holy Spirit would descend upon them. And so I invite you, during this closing song, if you are at a marking moment of your faith, whether you're wanting to newly engage in a relationship with Jesus, or if you feel like you've been trusting in other things, like the weight of your life is maybe resting on something other than Jesus, but you want it to be him, you recognize that that won't hold, or if you just feel like those patterns from your past continue to come up and the grief or guilt or shame or whatever it is of what has happened in your past just won't seem to leave you, but you want to live in the freedom and the peace of Christ. We invite you to let this time be for you. I'm gonna invite you all to stand again and we will pray as we go into our closing song. Jesus, yours is the name above every other name. It was only through your blood on the cross that we are made new. And Lord, you always call us deeper. You always call us closer to you. And so, Heavenly Father, wherever people are at in this room, we ask that you would just meet them. That for those who are feeling strong in their faith, that you would encourage them. That you would show them how dear they are to you. For those of us who are wandering and struggling, for those of us who have never even come to know you, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be continually drawing us closer. God, meet us here today. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. <laughs>